0: This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome to another week of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. We're starting a new series this week. This is episode 279 entitled Exploring the Triad in Matthew 28 19. So as I mentioned this week's episode will start a new series in which we're going to look through and study the various passages in the New Testament where a quote-unquote triad appears Usually this triad is in the form of God, Jesus and the Holy Spirit appearing together either in a single sentence or in a single phrase and some people will look at these passages and Matthew 28:19 is kind of the hallmark triad passage. Some people will look at them and they will say, "Look, There is some 1st century evidence of the doctrine of the Trinity. It's right there. It's right there in the text. The Trinity didn't develop in church history. It wasn't something that came into fruition at the end of the 4th century and the beginning of the 5th century. No, it was right there from the beginning in the teachings of Jesus. Now, others note that this sort of interpretation of New Testament text is historically anachronistic because it is imposing 4th and 5th century Trinitarian thoughts and concepts and dogmas back into 1st century text. And thereby these interpreters would reject such an interpretation as completely impossible for the original writers to have expected their readers to conceive of. And there's a third group, those that try to just get rid of all of these New Testament passages because of the ways that they've been misunderstood and abused. And these interpreters will actually accuse the scribes of tampering with the Greek text so that they can insert these heretical triadic formulas. But what does the triadic formula Matthew 28 19 through 20 actually say and what did it mean for the original audience of the Gospel of Matthew let's find out on this week's episode of the biblical Unitarian podcast our first point today is simply looking at Matthew's triadic formula so let's read the passage in its context this of course happens at the conclusion of the Gospel of Matthew after Jesus has been raised from the dead and he has made a bodily appearance to his 11 apostles. And he says in 28.19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's Matthew 28, 19 through 20. It's often called the Great Commission for good reason. Now, there are a couple things about this passage that we need to state right from the beginning so that we don't get lost in the weeds of the exegesis. First of all, this passage is a legitimate passage. And what I mean by that is that it is legitimately present in the Greek text, And we have no reason to assume that this is not the sort of language or words that the original author of the Gospel of Matthew would have written in his original autograph. So these are legitimate words based on all available evidence. We can confirm this by looking at a 2nd century Christian document, the Didache, that use the Gospel of Matthew as a source, and in the manuscripts of the Didache, this triadic formula, referring to baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, that appears also in the Didache. So suggestions that Matthew was tampered with, and this was inserted into it by Trinitarian scribes of the 4th and 5th century, don't take into account the fact that the Didache used Matthew as a source and the Didache was written in the 2nd century and it copies this particular phrase. Are we going to assume that these scribes were also present in the 2nd century and they also inserted it there? That doesn't make any sense. So it appears in every manuscript that we have of the Gospel of Matthew. We cannot produce any manuscripts of Matthew to where the triadic formula in Matthew twenty nineteen is missing, or it appears in a different way, or it's leaving out some words. No manuscripts have an incomplete version of this verse. Now, some people will look at this passage where Jesus is telling his disciples that they need to be baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then they will look at the book of Acts to where nobody, baptizes with this so-called formula and they will assume that well if the book of acts doesn't do it then they were following jesus in which jesus told them to baptize in the name of jesus but that doesn't seem to be what matthew is saying in matthew 28 19 so we can reject what matthew has to say and favor what luke has to say in the book of acts Now, I don't think this is a particularly persuasive argument, and this is why. Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, doesn't know about the gospel of Matthew. Matthew was written completely independent of Luke. There is no evidence that Luke knew about Matthew or had Matthew as a source. So Luke is not responding to Matthew in any sort of way. And Luke in the book of Acts is actually summarizing the early church evangelism. He is not giving a word-for-word account of their various sermons and speeches as if Luke was walking around with a recording device. That's not what he was doing. The book of Acts is summarizing these speeches and sermons, They're not giving a word-for-word account. So comparing the book of Acts to Matthew doesn't actually solve what Matthew twenty nineteen was actually trying to say to its original audience. Now, some will also point to older commentaries on the Gospel of Matthew that used to cast doubt on the authenticity of Matthew 28, 19. But this particular hesitation has been completely abandoned in modern times. In fact, all modern commentaries on Matthew. And I checked mine. I have 16 commentaries on the Gospel of Matthew, and none of the modern commentaries give any sort of skepticism on the authenticity of the triadic formula in Matthew 28, 19. The Greek text should stand as it reads, and so if we can't dismiss it, if we can't cast doubt on it, if we don't have any good reasons to assume that it's been tampered with on textual grounds, The real question is, how do we interpret the reference to the Father, Son, and Spirit based on what Matthew wanted to convey to his original audience in the late 1st century? In other words, instead of spending all of our time saying what the passage doesn't mean, let's spend some time exploring what the passage does, in fact, mean and what it meant to its first readers. This moves us to our second point, what Matthew teaches about God. So if we're going to explore this triadic passage, I want to know what Matthew has tried to teach his readers about God, about the Son, and about the Holy Spirit. So here's just a broad survey of the things that Matthew has to say about God. So when it comes to the birth of Jesus, we can see that God is involved in this miraculous creation of the Son. In Matthew 1.19, it says that Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her plan to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been begotten in her is of the Holy Spirit. That's Matthew 1, verses 19 through 20. And here we can see the child has been begotten in her through God's powerful Holy Spirit. And the verb to beget here, the verb yanao, appears here in an aorist passive participle. The child who has been begotten, sometimes it's translated as has been conceived, but conception is the act of the mother. This is actually the verb that means to beget. It's been used 40 times earlier in Matthew chapter 1 to describe the act of a father bringing into existence their son. Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, etc., etc. The same verb is here, except now it's in the passive. And Greek grammarians will describe this as a divine passive. A divine passive is used in a text to where we don't want to talk about God out of some respect for God, and so instead of saying God did this, it will use the passive voice. So instead of saying God begat this child, it will say the child has been begotten using the divine passive. So God was involved in the bringing into existence of jesus now when jesus grows up and is an adult he gives a sermon on the mount and the sermon on the mount it begins with beatitudes and in matthew chapter 5 verse 8 jesus says blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see god matthew 5 verse 8 jesus is promising here that those who have purity in their heart and their motives and in their behavior that they will certainly see god Now, if Jesus was God, this wouldn't make any sense, because he's standing there right in front of them, giving them this sermon. Why would he say that you will see God in the future if he, being God, is actually right there in front of them? No, it's self-evident from this passage that God is someone distinct from the speaker here, from Jesus himself, and so the promise is that those who appear will ultimately see God in the kingdom of God. So, Jesus distinguishes himself from the unseen God. A little later in the Summer of the Mount, Jesus tells us where God is. In Matthew 5, verse 34, he says, But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. Here he tells us that the throne of God is located in heaven. And yet Jesus will tell us later in Matthew, in Matthew 2531 that his throne is going to be a throne on the earth. So there are two thrones. There's a throne of God that's located in heaven. And then Jesus will tell us later that his throne, the throne of David, will be located on the earth. Now in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches people how to pray. He also teaches to whom we should pray. So in Matthew 6, verse 9, he says, you're to pray in this way, and we pray to the Father, who is our Father. Where is he? He is in heaven, and of course his name is to be hallowed and set apart. As Matthew 6, verse 9. So not only is God's throne in heaven, but God himself is in heaven, but God is described as the Father. So we can put that together, we can see that God is in heaven, God's throne is in heaven, God is on the throne but God is described as the Father, and he is our Father. It's interesting there, because when Jesus is praying, he's assuming that God is also his Father. And if God is his Father, then that makes Jesus the Son of God. That much is very clear. Now, there's an interesting passage to where God is understood as empowering and authorizing Jesus to perform the prerogatives of God. So in Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 2, it says that people brought to Jesus a paralytic lying on a bed. And seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Some of the scribes said, This fellow blasphemes. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were all struck and glorified God, who had given such authority to men. That's Matthew 9, verses 2 through 8. Quite clearly here, Jesus possesses the authority to forgive sins, because God has given that authority to him. Not that Jesus himself is God, but that God has empowered Jesus. And in doing so, Jesus defines himself as the Son of Man. He defines himself as the human being, from Daniel chapter 7, who is known to be authorized and empowered by the true God. So as a man, as a human being, a member of the human race, Jesus is highly authorized, and highly empowered by the true God, someone distinguished from Jesus, to perform the prerogatives of God. So what we can learn here is that God is distinguished from Jesus, but yet God empowers Jesus to do things that typically only God can do. And then on the cross, Jesus defines his relationship to God. He says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Matthew 27, verse 46. So we learn who God is. Who is God? Well, God is the God of Jesus. Jesus says, my God, twice. And in doing so, he is not only making a profound statement, he is quoting scripture. He's quoting Psalm 22. So this is something that would have been understood for a long time, that the psalmist has a God and that God, of course, is the God of Jesus. And then at the resurrection, according to Matthew 28, verse 6, we can see that it's said of Jesus that he is not here, for he has risen, Matthew 28, verse 6. Now, the phrase he has risen is not quite as accurate as we could be. It's in the aorist passive, okay? a fee, meaning he has been raised. There again is the divine passive. Instead of saying, God raised Jesus, it says, he has been raised, indicating that, of course, God is the one that raised Jesus. Jesus died. he needed need to be vindicated from death. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Well, God raised Jesus from the dead. So what does Matthew want us to know about God? Well, God is the Father. God is located in heaven. God helped to create Jesus, empowered Jesus and raise Jesus from the dead. Of course, God is clearly distinguished from Jesus. Let's move to our third point what Matthew teaches about the Son. Matthew is all about the Son, it's a biography of Jesus. So there are 600 things we could say about the Son, but I want to kind of focus in here on five of them. So in the opening line, Matthew tells us who the Son is. He mentions that. In Matthew 1 1 this is a genealogy of Jesus who is he he's the Messiah the son of David and the son of Abraham as the Messiah he is the anointed king of God's kingdom as the descendant of David he is the heir to the promises of the Davidic covenant as well as being the biological descendant of David this makes Jesus a human being and someone who is chronologically younger than David and going even further Jesus is the son of Abraham meaning he's going to be the climax of the promises made to Israel's patriarchs. And, of course, he's a Jew, he's a child of Abraham, and he's someone who is chronologically younger than Abraham. That much is absolutely obvious and clear right from the beginning of reading Matthew. Now, of course, Jesus is brought into existence at his birth. Matthew makes this quite clear in Matthew 1.18, where he talks about the birth of Jesus Christ Using the Greek noun genesis, the genesis of Jesus, the beginning, the birth, the creation of Jesus took place as follows. And then it goes on and it tells us, just as we read earlier in verses 19 through 20, to where God fathered Jesus. God begat Jesus. Now Jesus grows up, he goes into the wilderness, and he is tempted And the temptation is not whether he is God the Son. The temptation is not whether he is the Almighty God. The temptation is not whether he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. The temptation is whether he is the Son of God. Are you Jesus the Messiah? So in Matthew 4, verse 3, the tempter came and said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Matthew 4, verse 3. So, of course, the narrator wants you to know that this is the temptation, but the reality is, yes, it's true. Jesus really is the Son of God. And I have to keep making this point because, even though it's fairly obvious, it hasn't quite connected in the minds of many readers. If Jesus is the Son of God, then God, by definition, is the Father. Okay, The Son of someone, that someone who is masculine, has to be a father. Now, Jesus responds to this in a very interesting way. In Matthew 4, 4, Jesus answered and said, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Matthew 4, verse 4. So not only is Jesus quoting scripture to indicate that we shouldn't trust on bread alone, we should trust all of the words that come out of the mouth of God. But in doing so, he quotes from Deuteronomy, which says that man, a human being, shall not live on bread alone. So in responding to the question of whether or not he is the son of God, Jesus affirms it by indicating that he is a man. He is a human being. He's a member of the human race. So Jesus quotes a passage about a human being not living on bread alone, to describe how he himself is not going to live on bread alone. So Jesus calls himself a man, a human being. And of course, Jesus acknowledges his own ignorance to the second coming and ascribes that knowledge to only one person, namely the Father. So this is in Matthew 24, 36. Jesus says, of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but God. The Father alone. That's Matthew 24, 36. A very important passage in Matthew. Here, Jesus does some interesting things. He says that only the Father knows this particular information. So you can't sit there and say, well, Jesus has two natures. He's got a God nature and a human nature, and the human nature doesn't know, but the God nature does know. That's not what Jesus says. He says only the Father knows. We can also see that Jesus is not ascribing this knowledge to the Spirit, as if the Spirit is a separate, distinct, conscious person alongside the Father. Only the Father knows. And Jesus distinguishes himself, the Son, from the angels of heaven. meaning that Jesus himself is not an heavenly angel. Jesus is the Son. He's a human being. He's the descendant of Abraham. He's the descendant of David. He calls himself a man. So Jesus is not omniscient, only the Father is omniscient, and in describing the persons who possess omniscience, he doesn't give that to the Holy Spirit. So Jesus does not think that God is a trinity of persons. So that's what Matthew teaches about the Son. What about the Spirit? What about the Holy Spirit? What does the Gospel of Matthew want its original readers to understand about the Spirit? All well, the Spirit's involved in empowering Jesus and anointing Jesus for his ministry. So, of course, at the baptism of Jesus, in Matthew 3, verse 16, it says the Spirit of God was descending as a dove and lighting on Jesus. So, at the baptism of Jesus was a public anointing ceremony for Jesus being the Messiah. The Spirit comes down and empowers Jesus. It anoints Jesus, and it acknowledges Jesus as the son of God now when Jesus is telling his disciples how they are supposed to respond when they run into conflict and trouble Jesus defines the spirit in a very interesting way and I think this is probably the most important passage about the spirit in Matthew's gospel and it typically gets left out of these conversations so in Matthew 10 verse 19 Jesus says When they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you're going to say. It'll be given to you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. That's Matthew 10, verses 19-20. through Two points I want to make here. First, it's not described as the Spirit of God. It's described as the Spirit of your Father. This is a spirit that's related to your Father. Remember, your Heavenly Father, the one to whom we should be praying? The Spirit is connected to the Father. It's the Father's Spirit. Why is it the Father's Spirit? Because God just is the Father, and the Father just is God. So it's just like saying the Spirit of God, but Jesus goes a little further and defines God more clearly as the Father. So this is not a separate conscious person alongside the Father, This is God's own spirit, namely the Father's own spirit. It's the extension of the Father's presence and power, empowering and working in the lives of Jesus and Jesus' disciples. That's the first thing I want to say. The second thing is that the translation here, the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you, is not actually correct. Because it's not who in the sense of a masculine pronoun. The word here, or at least the phrase in Greek, is to laun. not who speaks, but that or which speaks, because the to is grammatically neuter, which lines up with the spirit, the Greek noun ponema, which is also grammatically neuter. The spirit is not a person who speaks in you, the spirit is a thing that speaks in you. So this is not a reference to the personality of the Spirit. Translation who is wrong. It's incorrect. You can't translate a neuter phrase as a masculine phrase. It's the Spirit that speaks, or the Spirit which speaks. So that is very interesting for understanding of the Spirit. And of course, when Jesus performs miracles, he indicates that he's empowered by the Spirit. For example, Matthew 12, 28 Jesus if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So the Spirit of God, which you've already seen, is also the Spirit of your Father. This is the same Spirit that has empowered Jesus to perform these miracles, namely these exorcisms that demonstrate that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated in Jesus' ministry. So we've learned about what Matthew teaches about God. We've learned what Matthew teaches about the Son, learn what Matthew teaches about the spirit, what conclusion can we draw, and how can we take all this information and we can come to the final sentence of the book of Matthew, and how can we now take all this information and use it to understand what the triad in Matthew 28, 19-20 actually meant to the original readers. Well, first, we can see that the risen Jesus, who has inaugurated the new covenant in his death, is now teaching his disciples how to initiate people into this new covenant agreement between God and humanity. Next, we can see that in the instructions of Jesus, he is not having people Judaize. They don't have to take on circumcision. They don't have to follow Moses. Moses, of course, was the mediator of the old covenant, but Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant in order To baptize converts, the disciples will have to initiate them by getting these newly baptized disciples to obey the commandments of Jesus, not the commandments of Moses. Therefore, to baptize someone in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit is to immerse someone in water under the authority of God the Father, that is, the Creator and the God of Jesus. They're to immerse someone under the authority of the Son, namely the Messiah and the Mediator of the New Covenant, and the authority of the Spirit, namely the empowering presence of the Father that marks out the people of God in this New Covenant relationship. So that's what I think Matthew intended for his readers to walk away with as they read this Great Commission. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we continue to explore the triadic statements of the New Testament, the passages that talk about God, Jesus, and the Spirit. And next week we'll look very closely at Romans 15, verse 30, where God, Christ, and the Spirit are again mentioned together in the same sentence as Paul is discussing the ideal prayer life. So you're not going to want to miss Our next episode, please look forward to it. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote the sound, important, non-negotiable truths about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. You can support us for free by subscribing, by giving us an honest review online, and sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. If you'd like to offer a donation, please check out the episode's description for a link to PayPal. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.